I'm a blessed kid. I'm thankful for my parents who are here with me today and they teach me about the love of God. The last time I was here, over one million people viewed the video. There were so many nice comments, but there were several comments that weren't so nice. There was one comment that stuck out to me. An angry man saw the video and said, what can a boy preach to me? And so I think that's the word for this morning. What can a boy preach to me? I need to tell somebody this morning that regardless of your age, God can work through you if you place your life in his hands. The notion or the idea that young people, that God can't use the young is not congruent or in agreement with the Bible. All through history, God has favored the young. Can I call the roll real quick? Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart played harpsichord and published his first musical composition by five years of age. Pablo Picasso painted his first work of art by nine years old. Stevie Wonder blind since childhood. He learned how to play the piano, the harmonica, and the drums and recorded his first album by 12 years old. David is 12 when he is first anointed to be king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were teenagers. In John 6, a little boy's lunch feeds 5,000. In Genesis 8, young Joseph runs Potiphar's entire estate. The prophet Jeremiah is ordained from his mother's womb. And according to Jewish culture, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was between 12 and 14 years old when she was carrying the Son of God. When Ishmael was dying in the wilderness with his mother Hagar, he prayed with his mother. And the Bible says that God heard the voice of the boy. In 1963, African-American children staged a school walkout to march in protest for civil rights. And last but not least, in 1958, a four-year-old Alfred Charles Sharpton stood in Washington Temple and began to preach the word of God. Young people, God hears you when you pray. Number says that Joshua followed Moses from his youth. And here's a lesson for some of the elders in here today. Somebody has got to be willing to encourage young people in holiness. Don't write us off. We've got some treasure inside of us. If we can learn the lyrics to Lil Nas X and the baby and Drake and Lizzo and all them other people, then we can learn the Bible and apply it. How about this young preacher boy here? You don't see that every day. Give him a hand too. He's obviously had some good training. And did you hear what he said? We, we've got to have some elderly people that are willing to train young people in holiness it's not happening much today it's sad to say that um, our young people are drifting away from God our world is changing we, we all know that there's some good changes but often there are changes that are not so good going on in our world today 
And to be honest with you, many of us who love the Lord, we have this sense that something is wrong, that something is just not right. And to be honest with you, things are going to get worse. In the book of uh, 2 Timothy, chapter 3 says, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That prophecy by the Apostle Paul is, is true. It's happening in, in our age today. And many of us sense that just something is wrong. And I want to tell you something. We're losing our young people today. I'll say more about that in a minute, but many of them, unlike this young man that preached, are far, far from God. I want to read you something Paul Harvey wrote in 1964. If I were the prince of darkness, I would want to engulf the whole earth in darkness. If I had a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, I would not be happy until I seized the ripest apple on the tree. So I would set out however necessary to take over the United States. I would begin with the campaign of whispers, with the wisdom of a serpent. I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper, the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what is bad is good and what is good is square. In the years of the young married, I would whisper that work is debasing, that cocktail parties are good for you. I would caution them not to be extreme in religion, in patriotism, in moral conduct. And to the old, I would pray, say after me, our Father, which are in Washington. I'd get rid of organized, of the organized, and I would educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I would infiltrate unions and urge more loafing, less work. Idle hands usually work for me. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects. I would neglect the disciplined emotions. I would let those run wild. I would designate an atheist to front for me before the highest courts, and I would get preachers to say she is right. And with flattery and promises of power, I would get the courts to vote against God in favor of pornography. Thus, I would evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, then from the houses of Congress, and then in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and defy science. If I were Satan, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who 
have and give to those who wanted until I killed the incentive of ambitious. My police state would force everybody to work. Then I would separate families, putting children in uniform and women in coal mines and objectors in slave camps. If I were Satan, I'd just keep doing what I'm doing and the whole world would go to hell as sure as the devil. Now, it's interesting, though, that that was written in 1964 by Paul Harvey. He predicted things that were going to come true in our nation. Thank goodness many of them have not played out themselves in our country, but they have in many countries. So we've got to be on our guard. We are finishing up our series today about our vision and our mission and our values. And, of course, we have presented to you our new mission that hope changes everything. And of course, we're talking about hope in Jesus Christ. And that our mission is to love God and love people and serve both. And we really want to make that known to the world that the love of God is important. We have certain values that we've been working through, that Christ is central, that Scripture is truth, that community is vital, that Spiritual growth is essential. And today we move to the last of those values, that the next generation is a priority. Uh, we are certainly losing the next generation. And I ask the question today, why should the church make the next generation a priority? Why should we do that? Listen, God has called Christian parents and grandparents to oversee and teach their children. Proverbs 22.6 says, Start children off in the way they should go. Or some translations say, Train a child in the way he should go. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now the Bible tells us to love everyone. That's why the church has to stand for the biblical truth. We don't want people to get comfortable thinking their sin is okay and that God just arbitrarily forgives anyone. And God calls us, the people, His people, to take responsibility for our kids and for our world to preach the Word and to make sure that the love of God is known but that He is not uh, up for just any way of living. You know, when I first started preaching... About 85 to 90 percent of the people in the United States said they were Christians. A recent survey I saw said about 65 percent of the people in America claim to be Christians. About 65 percent. A new survey I just saw used to be about 40 percent of people were be in church on Sunday. Now that figure, many say, has dropped to about 20 percent of the people in America attend church on Sunday morning. Part of that has to do with the internet, but if you only have internet as your church, you won't, uh, and I know there are many that can't get out, and it's great for them, but for those who can, the internet church won't substitute for the genuine contact with being with the Lord's people. Of our youth today, of those that attend church, about two-thirds will leave the church after they graduate high school. 
What I'm trying to do is make a case for you that we have to take responsibility for the next generation. We can't just sit back and say, oh, well, if they don't want to go, let them, let them go the way they want to. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do everything we can to try to bring people in to the church and give them the training that they need to know the Lord. I'll tell you what, if we don't, in 20 years from now, you won't recognize America. America was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. But there are many among us today that want to write those principles off and take our country to a whole new place. So we have to do all that we can do to reach the next generations, especially those generations that are called uh, millennials, those between 40 and 25, or the Generation Z, those under age 25. I'd like for you to turn today to Joel chapter 1. The book of Joel in the Old Testament, just a couple of books uh, past the book of Daniel in your Old Testament. We'll begin in Joel chapter 1. Joel was a prophet in the, around the 6th century B.C. That's in the 500s of uh, 500 years before Christ. There was a massive invasion of locusts in God's nation of Israel. The people were devastated. They were, they were famished. They didn't have food to eat. They had to go outside to get it. Uh, Joel believes that that was punishment from God. And yes, God does sometimes punish his people. Hebrews 12 says, The Lord disciplines those he loves, and endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as children. When people get off track from the Lord, God sometimes brings discipline on them. Maybe we don't know whether he caused the locusts or he just allowed them to, to, to come. But it was a message from God to the people that they had drifted away. And listen to the instructions now that Joel gives to the people of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Joel son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who love the land, who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened to you in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell their children and let their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. I want you to notice in this passage that three times he says, tell the children, tell the children, tell the next generation about what happened because the people drifted away from God. He also names three kinds of locusts. Great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts. Three, that is a symbol that this is from God. Joel is trying to tell his, and instruct his people, listen, something bad has happened because we, God's people, have drifted away and we need to make sure that we let the next generations know what will happen if we drift away. They drifted. I want to tell you something here today and you... You probably don't need to hear it from me. You already know it, but I'm going to say it. Our nation is drifting from
from God. Our nation is drifting from God. We have this country founded on Judeo-Christian values, but many of those values are slipping by the wayside. They're going away. Events are reported every day about terrorist attacks and school shootings and, and politicians that are working for the good of their self and, and their own agenda, not what's good for the people. And I'm talking on both sides of the aisle. Immoral practices, including sexual promiscuity, are being promoted and praised by many of our leaders in our country. Sex outside of marriage and homosexuality and transgender all of that being hailed as brave and courageous and wholesome. <clears throat> Bob Russell, former pastor of Southeast Christian Church for over 40 years, who's now retired, in a recent blog said, influential leaders everywhere are placing tremendous pressure on everyone to embrace abortion, homosexuality, gender transition, and cultural Marxism. For example, President Biden recently welcomed a man dressed as a young girl as a special guest to the White House, praising him as wholesome and insisting that those who oppose transition surgeries are immoral. And there are numerous reports of schools hosting drag queens to read inter, uh, and entertain students, some as young as preschool. Russell also warns what the Bible says in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. You know, the Bible does tell us to love everybody, even people that are not like us. All people of all colors and shapes and sizes and religions and even those that have no religion. But it does not tell us to condone their behavior. And if we don't stand for God's principles, the people of God, who will? Who will stand up? I want to show you some pictures. These are very graphic. Uh, but these are pictures of the riots during the George Floyd uh, uh, protests that were going on. Now, it's okay to have a peaceful protest in our country. It is encouraged when people don't like some things that are going on. But these were not peaceful. People were setting fires in the streets. People were looting businesses. People were turning over police cars and breaking out windows and, and stealing stuff that did not belong to them. And then we have, uh, we have uh, January 6th. We have the march on Washington and the protests there. But it turned to be not peaceful. And people broke into the White House and stormed Congress. That is not of God. And they, they, uh, they even killed at least one person during their time there. Listen, folks, this is what an ungodly society does. They go against the principles of God. They go against the principles of our government in order to get their own way. And if we're not careful, we're going to find things getting worse. There's plenty of activist groups and website communities where our young people can go and get involved in all this 
and get support for whatever trendy, ungodly thing is going on or whatever immoral behavior that they want to participate in. Where will they get God's truth? Where will the young people of today get God's truth? How will they even know that there is a different message than what is being shoved down their throats by American media and social media and music and their peers and in some cases even school? Now they're not all bad. All schools are not bad. All music is not bad. All social media is not bad. All American media is not bad. But much of it is shoving down our young people's throats things that go against the principles of God. Listen, the second thing I want you to see is that God wants future generations to understand the result of this. It's got to be made known. That's why he told Joel, make sure the people... Tell their kids to understand the results of turning from God. Make sure they know God is disciplining His people. Now that requires something of the people. That requires the people to fess up and say, God, we know. We have not done what we should do. We have, we have turned from You. And it requires the people to admit they should have been in a better relationship with God. And until they changed that, things for them was not going to get better. Listen to what Joel said down in chapter 1, verse 5. Wake up, people. In verse 8, mourn. In verse 11, despair and wail and grieve. In verse 13, put on sackcloth. That was a sign of, of grieving and mourning. And they would put black soot on their face. And then in in verse 14, declare a holy fast. Get on your knees, he said, and blow the trumpet and sound the alarm. He goes on to indicate, look, he's fearful that the world is going to end very soon. Now, of course, that didn't happen. But it could have. It could come at any time. Our world could end tomorrow or the next day or even today before this service is over, are we ready? And do we care about the future generations to make sure that they are ready? Listen, God loves us. We all grew up singing that song, didn't we? Red and yellow, black and white. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And we got to know that God loves people, and God doesn't want to, to bring that judgment on people Listen to what God wants over in chapter 2 of Joel, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and your garments. Return to the, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for He is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love and he relents from sending calamity. You notice that part in verse 13 there. It says, rend your hearts and not your garments. It was the practice of the Jewish people when, when they were mourning to show their remorse by ripping their garments. And God's saying, look, I just don't want you to just rip your garments. I want your heart. I want you to turn back to me. 
And I want the kids to know that they've got to turn back to me. And it's got to pass to the next generation. In the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 7, there is a famous passage. But most people don't understand the context of that. They had just dedicated the temple that Solomon had built to the Lord. And God said, this is going to be my place. This is going to be the place, the temple for sacrifices where I'm going to meet people and I'm going to receive sacrifices. But in verse 13, God says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, perhaps he had in mind the days of Joel when he said that. But he goes on to say this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. God says, if my people, He doesn't say, if all the bad people of the world will turn to me. He says, no, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their sin, I will heal their land. You know, God will punish His people when they get off track. Sometimes He just allows the natural circumstances of being uh, out of God's will to come into your life and try to turn you around. But how can we point a finger at the world if we don't live for God? If we're not seeking to live a life that honors God and shows His love to the world? Now, I know none of us will ever be perfect but we can be working to be the kind of people that God wants us to be and working to ensure that this world is a place where our kids know God and our grandkids know God and that we're telling the next generation. Romans 10, verse 14 and 15. How then can they call on one who they not believed in? And how can they believe in one in whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How will the next generation know if the church of today does not make the message known that turning from God would lead to disaster? So here's the last point. God's people have to take responsibility for the message. Jesus called us to go into all the world. That means all people of all nations of all colors, of all ages. And Joel reminds us here today that the next generation needs to know what a world that's fallen away from God would look like. You know, we're starting to see it more and more as we look at those around who are falling away, who are godless people. And you know, those of us who know the Lord, we are certainly sensing that something is is not right. And if we're going to reach the next generation, we have to begin with them and where they are. It's not enough to say, hey, here we are. Come join us if you want to. Come be like us. No, we want people to be like Jesus. And we have to demonstrate and teach and preach the love of God. And we have to call sin what it is 
And we have to point people to the grace of Christ and His redeeming power. And if our methods are not working, listen, the days of this are long since gone. That won't reach anybody for Christ. We've got to look to new methods and not just holding up a sign that says Jesus saves. I've never ministered to anybody that said that I was driving down the road and somebody had a, a bumper sticker on their car that said Jesus saves and the light came on and I came to church. You know what brings people to church? More and more the surveys say the personal invitation of somebody they know. We've got to be willing to reach out. Apostle Paul said, I've become all things to all men in order that I might save some. That didn't mean he changed the message. That means he was willing to meet people where they were so that he could give them the message. You know, we have to change the method. Somebody said methods are many, principles are few. Methods always change, principles never do. Perhaps you've heard of the great preacher back in the days of the Civil War, D.L. Moody. From, he was born in Chicago and gave up a lucrative shoe business in order to become a preacher of the gospel. And before long, especially after the Civil War, he began to draw great crowds. So popular was his preaching that he, uh, he spoke all over the United States and eventually even went to Europe and spoke in England and in various places, drawing crowds of as many in that day of 20,000 people, which we would call a megachurch today. And on one occasion, uh, Moody was speaking with a woman, and she said, I don't like the way you evangelize. He was kind of in your face. He was kind of, he was an outgoing preacher and flamboyant in his style. And he said, well, Matt, how do you share the gospel with people that don't know Jesus? And she said, well, I don't do that. He said, I like my way better. And I don't know how, how our style should be, but if it's not working, then we need to change it. Because we need to reach the young people, the next generation. I had a conversation a few years ago, and this is, this is not a knock on this person, but this lady was part of our church. She's passed on now. But she was steeped in her way of thinking. And she came to me one day and she said, Mark, and by the way, we were really good friends. I, I cried when she passed away. And she came to me and she said, Mark, I want to get to know some of the young people better. Would you ask some of them to come and sit with me in the traditional service? And I said, well, I will, but I don't think they'll come. Why don't you go sit with them in their service? And she said, well, I don't like the music. And I said, well, they don't like your music. And she said, well, how about this? Will you ask them to come sit at my table on Wednesday night's meal so I can get to know them? And I said, well, I will ask them, but I don't think they'll come. Why don't you go sit at their table? And I said, well, and she said, well, their table's always full of all their friends. And I said, well, your table's always full of all your friends. To my knowledge, she never went to the other service. 
She never went to sit at their table. Yet she truly, genuinely have a desire to meet them and get to know them. You know, if we're going to make a difference, we have to step out of our comfort zone. Look at what Jesus did. He went out of his comfort zone to meet with sinners and tax collectors and to help them know him. The Apostle Paul traveled all over the world and got out of his comfort zone to help people know Jesus. And we've got to change the mindset that God has not called us to use old methods to reach a new generation. That He's called us to think outside the box and to go where people are and step out of our comfort zone. And it may require us to change things. It may require us to spend money. Right now, we've got teams in our church that are working on plans for uh, a five-year plan for evangelism and for discipleship and for reaching the next generation and how we're going to do those things. And I'm going to ask you to pray. If, you, if you're on one of those teams, I, I praise you for that. And if you're not, then pray and support the people that are so that we can draw up a plan that will help our church make a difference in this community for reaching the next generation. And here's our connection. If we have to make, that we have to make the next generation a priority. That was a unanimous decision of our elders as we came up with this new plan. Unanimous. It doesn't mean that other generations are not important. It doesn't mean that your generation is not important. It just means that we have to put more effort into the next generation. Those under 40, those youth and those kids, and the parents of those youth and those kids. As I close today, I want to tell you a story. This comes out of a, of a preacher. His name is Brad Powell. His book is Change Your Church for the Good. And Brad Powell, in his, uh, in his book, tells a story about a family. Uh, there, was a, there was a husband, and he was separated from his wife, and he, uh, he owned a jewelry store, a very successful jewelry store. He had three small children, uh, under 12 years old, and one day he was separated from his wife, and one day his mother was visiting to help him with the kids, and she was at his house. There was a knock on the door, and this group of men had decided that they were going to rob this man's house. And so they dressed up like delivery men and brought packages and knocked on the door, and the man's mother who was there visiting came and answered the door and let the men in, and then they pulled guns out and held her at gunpoint. When the children got home, they sat them down and held them at gunpoint and had the oldest child to call their dad and tell them, there are men in your house holding us at gunpoint. He immediately closed the store and rushed home, and when he got there, they held him at gunpoint and made him open up a safe that somehow they found out he had in his house and give them all the contents. And if that's all they lost, then that would have been okay. You can replace material goods. But those men wound up killing the mother and the father and those three children. 
As Paul Harvey would say, though, there's the rest of the story. As it turns out, some of the family members of this men that uh, had, had uh, been, had, went to uh, this church. And those, that man and his three kids had started coming to the church. They had been coming. And when they came to this church, which had remodeled their building to make it look more uh, attractive to the younger folks today, they had changed up some of their programs to make them fit the younger families of the day. And those three little kids, while being ministered to in the children's program, gave their life to Christ just a few days before they were killed. And that man, he gave his life to Christ. The family member said he came home from church so excited and told them the story even told them the exact seat he was sitting in and the exact time of the service. Now, this was a big church, 12,000 members, so the preacher didn't know everybody. But that man and his three little kids, just days before they died, gave their life to Christ and will now spend eternity in heaven. While it's tragic that they died, it's phenomenal that this church accepted them and helped them find Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the alternative, they would have spent eternity with the devil. And I know that sounds hard, but that's what the Bible teaches us, that those that don't give their life to Jesus Christ will not spend eternity in heaven with God. It's up to us to reach this next generation so they don't go to hell. And some of you are more concerned that I'm saying that people are going to go to hell than you are concerned about reaching the next generation. We've got to change our mindset. And we've got to begin to think about how are we going to reach this world that is dying and going to hell for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm guilty as charged. Lord, I, I have not always been what I should have been to reach that next generation. And our church has not always been what we should have been. But I pray today that you help us to change and begin to think in a mindset of how can we take that timeless age-old message and get it to the hearts of the next generation. Lord, that we might save some. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to this. But Lord, I pray that you help us to realize the need today that we don't lose the next generation to Satan. It's in the strong and mighty name of Jesus that I pray and praise today.